Welcome to a special podcast by Charles Adonetto. This is a special podcast with Judge Jim Blake of the Scottsdale City Court. As many of you know, Judge Blake does an annual case law review for the Judicial Conference uh, and for the Magistrate Conference and for the JP Conference. And um, for obvious reasons, we're going to go ahead and do this as a podcast. Uh, you can find the materials, as always, at the Hightail link, and there'll also be a CoJet certificate there at the Hightail link. Uh, and we'll just go away and, and kick it off to Judge Blake. Okay. Um, we'll start. This is a presentation that we were going to present at the Arizona Magistrates Association on March 27th, but that got canceled due to the current uh, issues with the contravirus. So we'll talk about those materials. Uh, we'll start on case number one, State versus Taggy, T-A-G-G-E. This basically was two siblings who have a medical marijuana card. They drove to a concert in Mesa where they were going to uh, smoke marijuana and then go into the concert to enjoy it, um, heightened by their use of marijuana. They parked in a car in a parking lot that was um, a public parking lot but was actually hired in order to have the people from the concert park there. Uh, next to them was a undercover officer in a car. He saw them light up their marijuana and start smoking it and decided to go and uh, confront them. They explained they have an Arizona Medical Marijuana Act card and therefore they should be exempt. Problem is you're not exempt to smoke marijuana in public. Now they tried to make the claim that they weren't smoking in public because they were in a car. That didn't fly. And they tried to say well we weren't in public because we were smoking in a parking lot that was reserved for that concert and therefore it was uh, private and wasn't public. That didn't fly either and basically the court held that we hold to the contrary that because immunity under AMMA does not extend to smoking marijuana in a public place the taggies could be prosecuted for smoking in their car in a public parking lot. One of the interesting issues that they raised but didn't resolve is what if they're a car had instead been a Winnebago or something like that that is a mobile home. Would that have been in public? You know, obviously if you have a trailer or your house is a trailer or something like that, or if you're uh, traveling and you happen to be smoking marijuana in your Winnebago, while not driving obviously, um, does that provide you with protection saying that that is no longer a public place? That wasn't resolved by this case because obviously it wasn't one of the issues, but it raises an interesting issue in the future. Next case is case number two, State versus Hernandez. And basically, this case was a Division II case that hopefully, in my opinion, will be overruled by the Supreme Court later on, and I thought the dissent was very good in this case. And basically what it has to do with under, uh, officers chasing car driven by who the state alleges is the defendant. Eventually, defendant flees. Other officers show up, show the officer one picture of a person who the officer says is the defendant who was driving. Defendant is eventually arrested and prosecuted. The car with the, that the defendant was alleged to have driven was a stolen vehicle. It's returned to the owner and no prints are taken. So eventually, the Court of Appeals said while the one-on-one -on -one show up with a picture, not in person was uh, suggestive it was okay to allow to occur. The 
part where they overturned the case had to do with a Willits instruction because they said that the fingerprint was visible and therefore the police should have taken it and therefore the court should have granted the defense motion for a Willits instruction. Uh, the reason why I don't think that's a good decision and there was a as I said a very good dissent is because you can touch items all the time and not leave a print. So the fact that there was no print wouldn't have been in exculpatory, inculpatory, one way or the other. There was a print, it could have been inculpatory, but that of course depends on where the print is. If it's on the outside, anyone, you could have touched the car any time that it was there, so it doesn't really establish anything one way or the other. But the courts here said you should get a Willits, which would cause a lot of trouble since as people who have practiced criminal law know for quite a long time, police almost never print anything. So that would mean in almost any case where there's a challenge as to identification, you can get a Willits instruction because they didn't print a stolen item. The court said to be entitled to a Willits instruction, the defendant must prove, one, the state failed to preserve material and reasonable accessible evidence that could have had a tendency to exonerate the accused. Two, there was resulting prejudice. Mindful of the inherent uncertainty of evidence which has been lost or destroyed, a Willits instruction merely erects a rebuttable presumption. It does not require a jury to infer the missing evidence would have been adverse to the state. Juries are free, is free to reject that notion. Nor does a Willits instruction include the state from presenting evidence as to why the absence of particular evidence is neither dispositive nor even exculpatory. Which means in any case where there's a stolen item that could have been touched by the defendant and prints weren't taken, the state if necessary with a Willits instruction will need to bring in an expert to say no people don't always leave prints it's not like TV where every time you touch an item there's a print left prints are smeared which means you can't identify them uh, and it's cost prohibitive to print to everything and to run all the prints so hopefully uh, if that goes up to the Supreme Court the Supreme Court will overturn it but right now we have to follow the laws it is stated and in this type of situation, a will it should be given. Next case I want to talk about was State versus Jones. This case reverses an earlier case, which to me, uh, again, like the Hernandez case, I didn't understand why the Court of Appeals had made the decision they did. Basically, this case said that, uh, no, if it's not a green leafy substance, if it's the dried resin or the resin that comes out of it, uh, including hashish, it doesn't fall under the definition of the AMMA, -A, -A, Arizona Medical Marijuana Act. This Supreme Court case overturned that and says, yes, resin is part of the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act, and if you have the card, you can have the resident resin. You just have to meet the other requirements of it. Don't be using it in public, that sort of thing. Uh, next case I want to talk about was number five, State versus Havertone. And basically that has to do with, uh, um, it's an old case that's been going on for years. And basically what it was is a, a car accident in Mojave County, I believe. Defendant is uh, taken by helicopter to Nevada for treatment of his injuries at a hospital there. There they draw the blood without a search warrant and they try to use it in the Havertone case. They determined that no, you can't use it um, because Arizona doesn't allow you to just to draw blood without a search warrant. And we'll find out as we go through this. There's a new Supreme Court case that addresses this issue. But um, Havertone says you can't do it and there is no good faith exception. Now, the question that this case res 
brings up and resolves, which wasn't addressed in the earlier cases, which you would think would have been something addressed right away, is the blood was drawn in Nevada. Which law applies? Arizona law or Nevada law applies? And in this case, the court found that Nevada law applies. Nevada allowed the drawing of the blood without a search warrant, and therefore the good faith exception would apply. The reason being that they kind of said this was is because the reason of the exclusionary rules to stop uh, police misconduct. In Arizona, you're not allowed to draw it without a search warrant. There's no good faith exception, so therefore you would suppress the evidence. In Nevada, it is allowed. So why would you exclude the evidence when the officers are following the law as it is in their state? So they said, uh, yes, they can use the blood. But again, like I said, we'll talk about that later on where there's a new Supreme Court case that came out that said um, you can draw blood under that circumstance. Um, um, and the defendant, it's like a rebuttal presumption for the defendant. But we'll talk about that more when the case comes up. And actually what I think I'll do is, because that's case number eight, let's just go to case number eight right now. Uh, Mitchell versus Wisconsin. And basically in that case, they arrest someone for DUI. They take him to the police station to do a, a breath test, but by that time he's too large, lethargic to do a blood test and basically he kind of passes out. So they take him to the hospital where blood is drawn. Now in Wisconsin, you can draw blood without a warrant because Wisconsin law uh, on their implied consent. It goes all the way up to the Supreme Court because, you know, as you know, in Arizona, you can't really draw blood without a uh, search warrant or get it from the hospital um, unless you have consent. Uh, because they say that exigent circumstances aren't created by the mere effervescence of the, of the uh, alcohol in the blood. In this case, they said that they would allow it. Um, and they talk about there are exceptions where a defendant can try to prove that this is an unusual case. For instance, they say, you know, a lot of these would be accidents where the police don't have time to get warrants, kind of misses the point like in Arizona where you can get a warrant just by calling on the phone. Uh, it's not a, a bad or a, takes a long time to do. It's actually done fairly quickly fairly each time. For instance, in Scottsdale, if you refuse the blood test, which you have a right to, again, let's differentiate. There's a difference between a breath test, which you have no right to refuse. You simply have the power to refuse under Supreme Court, uh, U.S. Supreme Court cases. Because, for instance, if I put the tube to you and say, blow in this, I can't make you blow if you refuse. The blood test, you have the right to refuse, and then they can go and try to get a search warrant. And in Scottsdale and a lot of other cities, once you refuse the blood test or the blood test or the breath test, they will call up and get a warrant. And then you have no opportunity to refuse because they have the right to take the blood from you once they have a warrant. This case said you don't need the warrant to get it from the hospital. Um, and basically what they do is they allow defendant later on after they get the blood to challenge it. The problem with this is, especially in Arizona is, since it's so easy to get the search warrant, just get the search warrant, then you don't have to bother with this case. Um, and a lot of times police look at this and they think, oh, well, we can just get it without it, so we'll just grab it. What difference does it make? Well, the difference it makes is there's going to be a huge motion to suppress. There's going to be a hearing on it, whereas you're going to spend hours 
writing up the motion to suppress, writing up the response, the court reviewing it, the court having a hearing, the court then making a factual determination that, the, uh, that you could do it under this case, and then the defendant has a right to rebut that. Whereas if you just get the search warrant in the first place, that takes less than a half hour generally. And you've saved all that time, effort. But you will find people who will use this case, so you need to be aware of it. And basically it talks about, there except that it's okay, but there are exceptions which the defendant can try to prove that this was an unusual case, i.e. the warrant would not have interfered with the police investigation, or the blood would not have been drawn except for the BAC issue. Um, if the defendant can show that, then you should have got the warrant. And that creates a lot of trouble later on when uh, the defendant can show that, hey, you could have got the warrant without any trouble. So don't get in that situation. Just get the warrant in the first place. Um, the court here, in such cases, we hold the exigent circumstances almost always permits a blood test without a warrant, which is contrary to how we review things in Arizona. But the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court of the United States and it makes those decisions. But again, here's where we talk about the rebuttal presumption. If you look at the very end of that case, thus, when a driver is unconscious, the general rule is that a warrant is not needed. The defendant can rebut this. How do they rebut it? It's easy to get a search warrant. Officer, how would it have interfered for you to get a search warrant? It wouldn't have. You've just lost that blood. So. While this is here, you have to be aware of it. It is not a smart strategic move, especially in Arizona where you can get search warrants on telephonic search warrants at any time during the night within like a half hour to go on that case. Next case we'll talk about is state number nine, uh, case number nine, state versus Mixton. And this is a Court of Appeals Division II case. And basically what it is is they're investigating uh, a defendant for sexual exploitation of a minor. Without a warrant, they get the, um, not website, uh, the controllers of the website or whatever you want to call it. I'm not too big on, uh, on podcasts or how to use the internet and stuff like that. But as you know, you use a internet provider and they keep numbers to show who's using the internet, when they're using it, why they're using it. What's interesting about this case is they go to a provider and they say, we'd like to know who's been sending this information and how we can find them. And the provider goes, which you, if you do search warrants, would find to be almost incredibly unusual, says, oh, here it is, it's X. <laughs> John Doe is the one who is using that. So they go, or in this case, Mr. Mixton. So they go arrest him. And they were trying to say that, uh, hey, you didn't get a warrant. You had no right to do that. I have a privacy right under the Fourth Amendment. Now, anyone who does search warrants knows most Internet companies will say, we're not giving you anything without a search warrant. <laughs> so they have the search warrant, so this won't be an issue because the police came and got the search warrant. On the rare cases where these companies won't do it, and what's re really interesting about this is when you look at it practically is, you can make an argument as to internet providers, but a lot of times these places don't need search warrants at all. Um, to give you an example, someone's been writing phony checks on my account. I inform the police. They want to look at my account. I say, by all means, you can look at my account. So they have permission to do it. The bank won't let them look at the account without a search warrant. They don't need it, but if they get a search warrant, they can't really be sued by anyone because they 
turned over these documents at the request of, or at the order of the court. Now in this case, they just gave it, which is unusual, but in what they said is that the Fourth Amendment doesn't really apply in this case because it's not a violation of the Fourth Amendment. And, but they did find that there's a thing called the Federal Third Party Doctrine. A lot of states follow it. A lot of states don't. And basically, if I contract with a third party, I lose my expectation of privacy because I've gone outside my circle. I've contracted with this uh, internet provider and said, hey, we'll enter this agreement. I've now done a third party, so I shouldn't expect they wouldn't give it to someone else. In this case, they expand the Arizona constitutional right to privacy and say that the third party doctrine is not to be followed in Arizona. They're not going to follow it. So in this type of issue, the um, it, it now um, increases the privacy rights that you have in Arizona as opposed to just how normally would say the Fourth Amendment rights, we don't include those or extend those or, or have them greater than the U.S. constitutional Fourth Amendment rights. We do in this instance. We, amongst other states, don't follow the federal third-party doctrine other states do. In this type of case, they were saying, as I understand the, the dissent, that they, the, that judge kind of felt they didn't really understand the Internet and how it works, and that's why the judges came up with this decision. It'll be interesting to see what the Supreme Court does. But practically, almost every provider requires a search warrant, so it really won't matter. This is only if they got it without a search warrant. Um, in this case, though, the defendant won the battle and lost the war because they said that while it violates our rule, this hadn't been expressed to police or police haven't been told, and there was the third party doctrine and there was the Fourth Amendment, so therefore the good faith exception applies. And they could have got this information, just they can't do it from the future now unless the Supreme Court overrules this. So the defendant was good enough to create this new doctrine for the future. It doesn't help him at all and he'll be in prison for a long time. Now the next case I want to talk about was number 10, State versus Javier Angelo Chavez. And basically this is a case where the police stop the driver. Neither one speaks the other's language very well, but they try the best they can. And the traffic stop ends. And then the officer, once it ends, decides to uh, carry on a conversation with you. And as he's carrying on the conversation, he says, although you disputed at the time of the hearing, that um, it was consensual and you agreed just to stay there and continue on with the talk. And eventually, you know, they ask stuff like, well, you don't have any drugs or anything in that car, do you? Oh, no, I don't have any drugs. Would you mind if I searched your car? Oh, yeah, go ahead, search the car. Why not? Um, I don't have any drugs, and of course, as we all know, in those circumstances, you do have drugs in the car. When they search the car, they find the drugs. So you move to suppress, saying, hey, once the, it, you don't deny it was a legitimate traffic stop, but that was resolved, and once it's resolved, I'm free to go. You had no right to keep me there, which is true. They can't keep you at the traffic stop once the initial traffic reasons are resolved. However, you can choose to stay and carry on a conversation with the officer as long as it is reasonable um, and you know you basically could leave. And they say routine traffic stop is more analogous to the so-called Terry stop than a formal arrest. 
As with the Terry stop, the duration of the officer's inquiry must extend only so long as to effectuate the purpose of the traffic stop or any related safety concerns. After the original purpose of the stop has been resolved, the officer must permit the driver to leave without further delay or questioning unless 1. The encounter between the officer and the driver ceases to be detention and becomes consensual. In this case, the officer was saying, hey, I just struck up a conversation. He could leave. He didn't leave. And the other person saying, no, that's not really what happened. He wouldn't let me go. But of course, as the judge, when they're hearing the conflicting testimony at the suppression, has to decide who to believe and which is correct. And then two, it goes, during the traffic stop, the officer gains reasonable or articulable suspicion that the driver is engaged in illegal activity. The Supreme Court has repeatedly has held repeatedly that the mere police question does not constitute a seizure. In this case, number two didn't apply because the officer didn't develop any additional reasonable articulable suspicion. He merely was carrying on a conversation and you agreed to things. If you agree to a consensual search, you can't really then complain later on that, um, hey, he had no right to search. He didn't have any right to search, but you agreed to it. Of course, remember, there was a factual dispute. The defendant was saying, no, I didn't agree to any of that. That's ridiculous. I wanted to leave, and he couldn't. I couldn't leave. The officer saying, no, that's not the case. And the language barrier concern didn't pan out for the defendant. Um, next case we will talk about is number 11, State versus Martin. And this is another case that overturned an earlier case. And this had to do with a hung jury where they were unable to agree on first-degree murder. They did convict on second-degree murder. The, uh, uh, the second-degree murder charge got overturned on appeal. And the state went back and charged not only with second-degree murder, but first-degree murder again because they had been unable to uh, make a decision. The courts allowed it up. Well, first of all, you were convicted. The courts allowed it up to the appellate court because they were saying that um, there had been no final determination, therefore double jeopardy didn't apply. Supreme Court said no. The jury heard the case. They didn't convict on the uh, first degree murder and they went to the lesser included. And they go, we hold the double jeopardy barred Martin's retrial for first degree murder because the state had a full and fair opportunity to try him on that charge in the first trial and the jury, after full deliberation, refused to convict. So, in case you see the case where they were saying uh, Martin under the Court of Appeals decision where they said, yeah, you could retry him for first-degree murder, this, that has been overturned, and now they're saying no. You had a full, fair opportunity, you lost, the jury didn't convict, and they convicted of the lesser included, so you're stuck. You can't retry it on that. Next case we talk about is case number 12, State of Arizona versus Griffith. And this case involved uh, getting ev uh, evidentiary statements from the defendant's uh, social media account. Um, in this case, the state got them in under the business record uh, exception. And the court said, uh, no, uh, these aren't business records. What it basically is, is, you know, you have Facebook or whatever those, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Twitter, I'm not on Instagram, any of that. But they're basically saying is these are business records of Facebook and they have to keep them and therefore I should get them in. Of course said sure you can and allowed it in. Defendants convicted. Now the appellate courts, even if you get the wrong reason 
as long as there was a good reason to allow it in, the courts will not overturn the verdict. And in this case, they said that's not business records. You can't get it under business records. So the question comes is, well, what can we get it in? Well, remember, you're alleging this is a statement of the defendant. So you can get it under in under the party opponent admission. You just have to prove it's their statement. Um, so it's not hearsay because it's the defendant making the statement. So in this case, you have to show authentication that the statement was made by and offered against the party opponent that they are not hearsay. Um, but what you have to show is there was sufficient evidence to show the defendant sent the message. So as long as you can prove that, then you can get it under the party opponent uh, statement. And if you can't prove it, how are you going to show it was a defendant's statement anyways and make that argument to the jury? Well, obviously... Uh, John Doe said X, and obviously John Doe did Y because of what he said. Well, if you can't show it was John Doe saying it, you're not going to get it in any ways. And what it has to be is that a reasonable trier of fact could look at this and determine that this came from John Doe. So that is a way to get in uh, media, social media accounts. It's going to happen more and more as we see it. Um, because more and more people are doing that and more and more people are being stupid and putting incriminating things um, on social media, which Lord knows why they would do that, but they do. Next case I wanted to talk about was State of Arizona, Arizona versus Sallard, which is number 13, S-A-L-L-A-R-D. And this is basically where the defendant's a passenger in a car which has drugs. The defendant is arrested and talks to the police, but after a while she says she'll answer no more questions. So one of the issues that comes up is there's a Fifth Amendment right, there's a Sixth Amendment right. Which one or did she invoke both? She didn't say, I want a lawyer. And that's a key point here. She never said, I want to talk to a lawyer. I don't want to talk to you without a lawyer. Just I don't want to answer questions. The police stopped questioning her. Now, one of the things, though, they wanted to do is they wanted to search her purse. Hmm? Phone. Oh, sorry. Search her phone. She agrees and, and incriminating information is found. Now what she says is, remember, this is not her going to the police saying, talking to her, reinitiating contact. In the Sixth Amendment, once you invoke it, the police can't contact you until you've had your lawyer and the lawyer said, oh, she wants to talk, or the um, you reinitiate contact. Like you go to the police and say, I want to talk. What you said you didn't want to. Now I do. Uh, no, I, not talk. You don't want to talk without an attorney. You can reinitiate contact and waive the right to an attorney. The police can't reinitiate contact and try to get you to waive that right. This case, though, she didn't uh, ask for a lawyer. She just said, I don't want to answer your question anymore, the Fifth Amendment rights. The police can go to you on the Fifth Amendment right as long as they're not going to question you or anything like that and say, can we search your phone? She agreed to it. So therefore, they found that that was okay because the Fifth Amendment right to remain silent protects a person from being compelled to provide the state with evidence of testimonial or con uh, commutative nature. Because testimony or communicative evidence reveals the subject's knowledge or thought process of the subject. A consent to search is not the type of incriminating statement towards which the Fifth Amendment is directed. Because it is not in itself evidence of a testimonial or communicative nature. And the right to remain silent is separate and distinct from the right to counsel. 
to invoke her Fifth Amendment right to counsel, the defendant must make a statement that shows a desire for an attorney during the interroga custodial interrogation. The Sixth Amendment right to counsel generally, by contrast, does not attach until after the initiation of formal charges. In this case, what's important to remember is the defendant never asked for a lawyer, never invoked the Sixth Amendment right. You've got to be careful because sometimes they can invoke both. I don't want to talk to you until I've talked to an attorney. Then you've got the question is, are you invoking the Fifth, are you invoking the Sixth, are you invoking both? So you always have to be careful with that. The next case I wanted to talk about was State of Arizona versus Patel. And this is that statute that has criminalized an accident where it results, a car accident, where it results in either serious physical injury or death. And basically when they created that statute, they had a $10,000 cap on restitution. That was changed then by the legislature I believe last year to raise it to $100,000, which is fine. But the problem you get, especially if someone died, is restitution is usually a lot more than ten dollars or $100,000. Just hospital bills, depending on how long it took them to die, that sort of thing. And can you cap restitution by statute? Um, that statute proceeded to do that. This case says, no, you can't cap it by um uh, statute because the Arizona Constitution victims rights and uh, such based uh, says based on the foregoing we conclude that the right to restitution guaranteed by the victims bill of rights in the Arizona Constitution equally applies to victims injured or killed by a defendant who is convicted of violating the ARS 28-672A that's the statute that makes that accident a crime as such Arizona ARS 28672G, which reports to cap restitution resulting from such a crime, violates the Arizona Constitution. So as we all remember, constitutional law is a statute cannot overrule the Constitution. Constitution overrules all statutes. So the putting a cap on that it wasn't allowed under our uh, law. The interesting question would be is, is what about all the old cases? Um, I don't know. It hasn't been raised to me yet. I've done a couple of these cases, and I'm waiting to see if anyone raises and says, hey, um, you set $10,000 statute. Now that's been changed or overturned. So uh, that's going to be an interesting thing to see what happens on that. Uh, next case to talk about is number 16, State of Arizona versus Fuentes. In this case, they want to get some information on the suspect. And so they go to the son's property where there's a trailer and uh, no one's there and they go inside and do a protective sweep and they find evidence uh, of a crime. They go back and they get a search warrant and they seize the evidence and they're charging the defendant. The judge de 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 denies the motion to suppress basically saying, hey, it's your son's trailer, you don't have standing and it's a protective sweep, which they can do. The Court of Appeals says no. Uh, the person does have standing and again it's particular facts of a case the reason this person has standing is he's the one who brought bought the property the trailer and such even though it's listed in the son's name and he stays there on and off and that was proved as part of it so that gives him standing to challenge a search of this property and because no one is present there's no reason to do a protective sweep who are you protecting it from you're illegally you're without proper authority 
police don't like you to use the word illegally, without proper authority, you're going into someone else's home, their trailer, and searching it. You can't go in there without authority and then say, oh, now we got to do a protective sweep because someone might be in here and injure us. And basically what they say is, we further conclude that the trial court, having been alerted to the, uh, whoops, sorry, wrong thing there, uh, the defendant has standing since he bought the property, even though listed in his son's name, and has been staying there on and off. Since no one is present, there is no protective sweep. The state has presented no authority, and we can find none, indicating that a protective sweep of a home is permissible, where, as here, the officers have not contemporarily arrested a suspect, and they will have no other lawful basis to enter the home. So um, what they had to do is just leave, <laughs> unless they could get a search warrant and reason they probably didn't get a search warrant is they probably didn't have the evidence to justify probable cause to search the place. Uh, next case we would want to talk about is number 17, State of Arizona versus Duffy. This is a Court of Appeals Division II case. And basically, Duffy and Mar uh, Martius are caught in a car with a lot of drugs. The same attorney is going to represent both of them at trial. Now, the problem is, is, and the prosecutor alerted the court to this, is that can create a big problem because for a number of reasons. Is one is, um, it might, well, first of all, it might not create a problem. They might have a joint defense and want to do this, um, but the problem it may create is one of them may be least, less culpable and the state may make a better offer to them. One of them may be a person who's more culpable that the state wants to give, so they make a better offer. Why don't you do this, Jane Doe, and testify against John Doe? And when you have the same lawyer, it's hard to recommend taking a deal that's going to hurt your other client. So that creates a big issue. The state makes the court aware that this could be an issue. Now the defense attorney says to the court, oh, don't, because the court does do a, a, a quick inquiry, saying, oh, don't worry, um, it's not going to create an issue, and I have a waiver. Now, the problem is, of course, once the trial concludes and both are convicted is, guess what one of the defendants says? This does create an issue. This does create a conflict. There's no real waiver here. So what they're saying here is, especially when you're put on notice by one of the parties, there's a problem here. Well, first of all, I think just looking at it, you should have seen there's a problem. Was, was that a court-appointed attorney or a private counsel? Uh, private counsel. Because, first of all, I've never seen a situation where a court-appointed attorney would represent both. Um, but this is private counsel. And um, the issue comes is now, again, like I said, there are legitimate times where private counsel is going to represent both. But you have to be real cautious, and that's what they're saying here. You have to do a real in-depth hearing. You have to make sure everyone understands the issues. Uh, for instance, it's a, it's a mutual defense. It's still not a good idea. <laughs> It's all, in fact, it's a horrible idea, but there could be a reason that this might be allowed. Um, again, you know, people have a right to hire, have the counsel of their choice, but you really have to make sure that's the choice they're making. Um, and in this case, you know, the, the minute the conviction occurs, it's not their choice anymore, and you should have done a much better job, and you should have changed this. First thing you should, they say is you should have had a, a real extensive hearing on this. You should have gone over for using the waiver. <laughs> You should have explored it with the both defendants. You know, this is an issue here, and make sure that they're understanding what's going on. And, they, and the Court of Appeal says, We further conclude that the trial court, having been alerted to the potential conflict between Duffy and Matias, erred by failing to conduct an adequate 
inquiry. Now remember, the judge did do an inquiry, just they're saying it's not adequate. And the propriety of the joint representation in this case, or the validity of Duffy's purported waiver of his constitutional right to conflict-free counsel. Um, that's where you do, uh, don't do a quick inquiry, do a, an adequate inquiry. And again, like I said, the court did do one here. And they put, uh, when a court knows or reasonably should know that a conflict may exist, it must initiate an inquiry. So even if the prosecutor hadn't brought it to the court's attention, it's obvious that there's a problem here and the court should have seen that and conducted. And again, we don't want to be too harsh on the judge here. The judge did conduct an inquiry just they felt it was not adequate. So you need to go back into that and, uh, and uh, make sure that uh, this is a big problem and it really shouldn't happen. Uh, it doesn't, ha it happens rarely, but a lot of times too, it'll just be people trying to save money. You know, uh, I'll pay the lawyer, instead of paying each two separate lawyers 20 grand, I'll pay the lawyer 10 grand or 15 grand and we both get a lawyer. Well, the problem is, is you're, uh, interest may diverge from the other defendant fairly quickly. And even if they don't diverge, it could be an issue where the other defendant's really bad and the state wants them really bad and will make you a sweetheart deal in order to uh, uh, resolve the case and testify against the defendant. Next case I want to talk about was 18 Crime Victims RS and SE versus uh, Honorable Thompson and Vanders, that is a Court of Appeals Division I case. Basically this involved a murder where the defendant wants to look at the victim's mental health records and he doesn't really have any reason except, hey, there might be something there. I want to look at them. And of course they realize no judge in their right mind is going to grant that. So then they say, well, what about an in-camera inspection? If you just do an in-camera inspection, then it's not as bad because you're just the one looking at it. And, uh, and let us know if there's anything in there. Again, it's a fishing expedition. So first, in my opinion, it shouldn't be granted because it's a fishing expedition. Next, it doesn't help that it's an in-camera inspection because as the representatives of the dead victim said, we don't want you looking at our medical records even though you're a judge, even though there's no reason for you to be prying in and depriving us of our privacy under the uh, uh, patient-doctor uh, privilege. And this court's and the defense was, hey, our constitutional rights to see all this and due process give us the rights to do this. They said, no, it doesn't. There has to be some nexus or some basis for not just, hey, maybe there's something in there. So the, it was appealed up where the court was going to look at it in camera, and they held that the, we hold that the uh, physician-patient privilege does not yield to the request of a criminal defendant for information merely because the information may be helpful to his defense. Vander's argument is that his constitutional rights overcome a statutory privilege. While it is true that a privilege cannot withstand a direct, remember, direct conflict with a constitutional right, a defendant's due process right to a fair trial does not create a right to discovery any greater than those created by Arizona Rules of Criminal Procedure 15.1, Brady v. Maryland. We hold that to be entitled to an in-camera review of privileged records as a matter of due process, the defendant must establish a substantial probability that the protected records contain information critical to an element of the charge or defense or that our unavailability will result in fundamentally unfair trials. Because Vanders does not establish such a probability, the court erred by granting an in-camera review of the victim's privileged rights.
Now the next case we talk about is State of Arizona versus Mendoza. And this has to do with settlement conferences. Um, a lot of times uh, we're getting more and more requests for settlement conferences. I, I'd probably be less um, requests in a single judge jurisdiction, but in the because there's not someone readily there to do a settlement conference, but like in uh, multi-judge um, courts, you, we get quite a few requests for settlement conferences. And in this case, the problem was is, as you all know, a sitting judge on the case should not do the settlement conference. First of all, it's not a good idea because you can do it if you have a, a certain waiver, but it's not a good idea because even if you have the waiver, they may think, oh, of course you're ruling against me because I didn't take the offer that you thought I should do, either from the state or the defense. Um, so it just creates an issue. But the rules do allow the parties to waive it and let the judge who's the trial judge hear it. Problem in this case is they didn't get the waiver. <laughs> so the judge heard the settlement conference, it didn't get settled, and the judge then uh, did the trial, the defendant was convicted, and then the judge, they used certain statements the judge made um, and during the settlement conference to say, hey, this is vindictive, this is not right, you're mad because we didn't take your deal, and therefore um, I should be retried, and if convicted, should be resentenced. In this case, they said, no, you don't get retried because it didn't affect the trial, but you do get to be resentenced. And they hold that, one, a Superior Court judge who is in violation of ARS Rules of Criminal Procedure, Rule 17.4A2, participates in a settlement conference between the defendant and the state without parties' consent. Again, they didn't get the consent. Now, just personally, I think it's a bad idea even if you get consent. Because, say, you know, you, you, the state wouldn't make the offer that you thought was appropriate as the judge. And then you rule against the state. Yeah, he's only ruling against me or she's only ruling against me because I wouldn't, I wouldn't buckle under and give the judge the deal they wanted. It's not true. But parties feel that way sometimes. So even though they signed a consent, it doesn't work. The defendant, you should take this offer. It's a good offer. Why don't you take it? Because uh, I don't want to do that much time in prison. I'm not taking it. Oh, yeah, of course the judge found uh, my confession was voluntary because I wouldn't take the offer he thought I should take. So, again, even though by law you can do it, if you get consent, it's not a good idea to do it, period. Um, but, again, like I said, you will be in compliance with the rule if you get consent. But here they didn't get consent, and they're thereafter presided over the defense trial and sentencing. Two, such error is fundamental if the totality of the circumstances raise a presumption of judicial vindictiveness. And three, if the presumption is unrebutted, unrebutted by the state. It requires the defendant to be either resentenced or retried before a different judge. Because we find an unrebutted presumption of judicial vindictiveness exists regarding Mendoza's sentences, sentence, we affirm the conviction but vacate a sentence or remand for resentencing before a different Superior Court judge. So just don't do it. It's not a good idea. And make sure you have another judge who hears the case. Uh, next case we could talk about is number 20, State versus Leal. Let's back up. Sure. If, mm -hmm. if they thought it was so obvious that there was judicial vindictiveness, why reverse the sentence but not the conviction? Because the comments he made had to do with sentencing. What would happen to you at sentencing? No judge would ever give you anything less than this if you were a convicted type thing. And they didn't find any problem at the trial. Okay. But say, you, for instance, you said, and, and you know what, I would rule this way, and I would rule this way during your trial, and I would rule that way, you might be in trouble. 
But in this case, it was sort of like, um, you know, with this allegation, there's, I can't remember the exact facts, but like they're, they're capping it at the presumptive, say. But with these allegations, I can't see any judge who at trial would give you less, would give you the presumptive. It'd be more than that. So you should take this deal, that type of thing. Then when sentencing, of course, you don't give the presumption, you give the aggravated term. But that's what they were looking at is the comments more went to the sentencing. That's why. And at least it saved the thing of having to do the trial all over again. Now, uh, number 20, State versus Leal. This is basically where you're convicted of murder. The uh, victims weren't able to do the burial costs. And the tribe, in this case, paid for the burial costs, not the victim. Um, the tribe obviously wants the burial costs put as restitution. The defendant says, no, it shouldn't be restitution because it's going to a government entity, not the person or the representative, in this case, a dead person wouldn't get it, but the representative of the person, say your family paid for the burial costs, they would then get the restitution. Or if it was paid out of your estate, the estate would get the burial costs. Here they say it's a government function and therefore um, it shouldn't happen. Now they said, of course, this isn't a normal government function. You do owe the restitution because in 13-804, it refers to a person getting their restitution, not victims. And the government takes the place of the person getting it, not the victims. So uh, you don't get out of paying restitution. Now, of course, if, unless you have money, if you're in prison for murder, uh, you know, we re I recently had a uh, person was asking about they owe like $800,000 and they're in prison. You know, how can they get restitution? I go, not much. Unless they have assets to attach. Play the lottery. Yeah. Unless they have assets to attach, you're really not going to get it. And you could attach the money they make in prison, but it's 20 cents an hour. So it's not going to make a dent in the $800,000. Now, the next case, which I thought was interesting, is um, number 21, State versus Klaus, K-L-O-S. And basically, this because I go to Thailand all the time, it was interesting because the person is a native Thai speaker. And what they were doing is they interview the defendant, who's a native Thai speaker, but been in this country for a long time. They interview her, they read her Miranda rights in English. And of course, you can all see what's going to be the issue as it comes down when she makes a confession, is that she didn't understand her rights, you should have read it in Thai, you should have a Thai interpreter, um, that sort of thing. And they said, no, what you do is you look at the totality of the circumstances surrounding the interrogation. And in this case, the defendant had been in the country for 40 years, spoke English at a 10th grade level, and uh, Miranda was read. And they say, uh, poor linguistic ability, although if you're able to speak it at a 10th grade level, I don't know that you'd have poor linguistic ability. I think that stacks up pretty well. Yeah, uh, I would think so too. <laughs> Uh, standing alone does not invalidate an otherwise knowing and intelligent waiver. Instead, we examine the totality of the circumstances describing the interrogation to determine whether a defendant had validly waived rights. Now, it's interesting, they go on, which we'll talk about describing the totality of the circumstances, most of which didn't exist in this case. So don't take it as, oh, you didn't have three of the, uh, there's six of them listed. Don't go by, oh, you didn't have four of them, so therefore... Uh, the statements are thrown out. It goes, uh, uh, to evaluate whether a non-native English speaker validly waived her rights, the court may consider such factors as one, whether the defendant signed a written waiver. Usually they don't have them sign a written waiver of their rights. Uh, depends on the jurisdiction you go to. Two, whether the defendant was advised of her rights in her native tongue. 
In this case, she wasn't advised of her rights in the native tongue. Whether the defendant appeared to understand the rights. Four, whether the, whether the defendant had the assistance of a translator. In this case, the defendant did not have the assistance of a translator. Whether the rights, whether defendant's rights were individually and repeatedly explained to her. In this case, they were. She would ask questions and the officer would answer the questions to the best of their ability. Whether the defendant had prior experience with the criminal justice system. I don't believe in this case she had prior experience. But again, we go back to the officer explained the rights in English. The officer uh, answered any questions she had about her rights. She spoke at a 10th grade level. She lived in the United States for 40 years. So they found that, uh, no, that, that was okay. So, um, I mean, you, you probably have people who are native speakers who don't speak at a 10th grade level. As a matter of fact, you may interview someone who is a freshman in high school who wouldn't be speaking at a 10th grade level and they can understand their rights and waive it. So um, again, the main thing to look at is totality of the circumstances. Uh, next case, which is kind of interesting, number 22 is State versus uh, G-I-A-N-N-O-T-T-A. And basically what this is, is that um, you have a gun and someone who is kind of a periphery on your life says, hey, I understand you have this gun. you mind if I look at it? And you go, no, by all means, you can look at it. And you steal it. And so I realize you're not giving me back my gun. So I call the police and say, John Doe stole my gun. Well, do you have the serial number? Yes, I do. Uh, I have the receipt. The serial number is da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Okay, officer writes it down on the police report, the serial number. Writes it down correctly. The trial comes up. Now, what should have happened was, in my opinion, and maybe this did and they just didn't mention it, what should have happened if you were a prosecutor properly prepared the case, you go, hey, John, when you're on the stand, I'm going to ask you, what's the serial number of your gun? I'm sure you didn't memorize it, so make sure you look at it or bring the receipt with you or whatever so you can, or write down the receipt so you can say this is what it is. That doesn't happen. So you go, John, what was the serial number on the gun? How the heck do I know? It's been a long time. I don't remember it. Um, did you tell Officer Blake the serial number? Yes. Okay. Then they put Officer Blake on the stand. Uh, Officer Blake, did you get the serial number from John? Yes, I did. Did you write it down? Yes. Did you write it down correctly? Yes. What is it? Objection. Hearsay. He's repeating it out of course. And they said, no, it's, re it's recorded re recollection. And they go, then the next objection would obviously be is, well, it's not your recollection that you recorded. And they said, that's okay. Now, the way it's okay is, we hold that the evidence was properly admitted under the hearsay exception for recorded recollection. And we clarify that a jointly constructed recorded recollection one person makes an oral statement, the other writes it down, may be admitted under this exception if each person involved in the creating of the record testifies to performing his or her role accurately. So remember, you can get it under that, but you have to make sure that they're going to say it's accurate. Well, Jim, did you tell the officer the correct um, serial number? Yes, I did. I read it off correctly to him. Officer Blake, did you write down correctly? Yes, I wrote it down exactly as he told me. So make sure they get that thrown in too before you get it. Okay, and for the record, mm -hmm. since Judge Blake didn't mm -hmm. attempt the name for our Italians in the office, mm -hmm. that is Giannata. <laughs> Correct. But, you know, because he's a criminal, I didn't want to okay. bring that up. <laughs> I'll, now, I'll convict him. Yeah. Okay. 
Now the next case is a, uh, an interesting one. State of Arizona versus Shanagan Lamas. S-A-H-A-G-U-N hyphen L-L-A-M-A-S. This is an interesting case because um, this, there's a trial going on and basically um, you disappear during the trial. Um, you're convicted. 13 years later you're captured and they do the sentencing and you're sent to prison. Now there had been a problem with the court reporter in your case and the court reporter had had trouble turning in transcripts and stuff like that and notes. Now of course 13 years have passed and unfortunately the court reporter has become deceased in the meantime. And one of the things you do after you're captured in 13 years and sentenced is you start, you appeal. And when you start your appeal, you find out the court reporter never did the record. So there is no record. Court reporter, too, was having trouble and did no notes. Because normally you would have the record the court reporter filed and do your appeal off that. Absent that, normally you have the notes and maybe be able to recorrect the appeal record enough for it to occur. In this case, you did not have the record, you did not have the notes. So they try to recreate the record as best they can, and they go to the judge 13 years later and say, for instance, uh, on January 12th, where we don't have a record, what happened? The judge, being an honest judge, says, I have no idea. <laughs> I believe I was there, but that's about it. I'm not sure what happened yesterday. Yeah. Imagine trying to say, and witness such and such said this, and the lawyer asked this, and then the witness says such and such said this. They go to the prosecutor, who has a little bit better remembrance of it, because they were trying the case, as opposed to judges waiting to say, overruled, sustained. But the prosecutor can only give bare outlines. Um, well, they asked something about this, and they asked something about that, and there was some response about this. And they say, that's good enough. That's a good enough recreation of the record. And they go, no, it's not. Um, it's not a good enough record because it's that no one, and, even, and the prosecutor's not trying to claim I'm giving word for word. I'm giving you general topics of what I believe was discussed on that day. And they said, that's not a good enough record. Then the prosecutor tries to say, well, the defendant should not get the benefit of this and should find that it was weighed because he fled for 13 years. And they said, no, that doesn't work either because the defendant didn't necessarily know that the person wasn't going to do their job of doing a record, wasn't going to do their job of leaving notes, and so you're kind of out of luck, and that's just the luck of the draw where you didn't have it. Uh, next case that we talk about is number 24, State versus Watson. And this case basically has to do where you have a overarching fraud and a bunch of individual thefts involving the same scheme. You're convicted and uh, they wanted to run some of the terms consecutively and they said no you can't really do that where it's the same uh, events basically. Um, so they said uh, you know Superior Court, uh, court rules that you cannot uh, sentence consecutively, Superior Court imposed an unlawful sentence under Arizona Revised Statute Section 13-116 by imposing a term of probation for Watson's frauds and schemes and artifice to be served consecutively to the sentence for the theft convictions, which is the scheme. <laughs> 
Um, if they were separate, I believe you could run them consecutively or one after the other, but since they're the same one, no. Um, the next case is another one where the, um, it is overturned an earlier case. And this is State versus, of Arizona versus Reed. And basically this had to do with the statute 13-106A, which says if you die during the pendency of your appeal, the appeal is dismissed and the convictions and such stay. And they're saying no, the legislature can't really make that decision. That's a court decision as to whether or not the appeal is there. And they basically uh, overturned that section. Now, they overturned part of it, having to do with appeals, uh, basically dismissing appeal on the convicted's death, the person's death. And the reason they did that is partially they say, like in this case, it was a restitution issue. And they say, well, there are other parties in interest in restitution. Uh, your estate, your wife, that sort of thing. So, you know, say the court imposed improper restitution, you're appealing up and you die. Well, your wife doesn't get that money anymore because the restitution order is still there even though it was improper. Your estate doesn't get that money more, anymore because it was improper, uh, uh, because they can't, the appeal has been dismissed. And they say that we take elements from Holster and Carlin to decide how to process a pending appeal of a restitution order upon the convicted defendant's death. One, a court should only decide the issue if the... If, if they are of statewide interest. B, remain a, and remain, a, remain a controversy, or C, are capable of repetition so the court's guidance would assist parties or the courts in the future. The court may permit the deceased defendant's estate or other interested party to intervene on the appeal. The appellate court may issue an order during the course of the appeal that it deems necessary or appropriate to facilitate or expedite the appeal for consideration. The court must dismiss an appeal if the defendant dies before the matter has been briefed. His counsel does not submit briefing or neither the court, the defendant's estate or interested party moves to intervene in the appeal. So you don't have to say, well, he's dead. Um, we've got to make someone do something if, there's no, if it's not been briefed yet. Or if the other party in interest, say, for instance, the wife or the estate is coming in and intervening saying, wait, you can't take this money from us. It was done improperly. So it does overturn an earlier case that's important to remember. Next case that can be very important um, is number 26, State versus Morgan. And this basically has to do with, um, the. it involves a father who's convicted of sexually abusing his daughter, comes time for sentencing, and the court leaves open restitution because the victim uh, is going to have future mental health, pro, uh, mental health programs for the victim to restore the victim. Defendant says, no, that's not right. Um, it's time for sentencing. I need to know what the restitution is going to be. You don't have a right to leave it open. They said, yes, you do. Authority to reserve jurisdiction over, to order restitution is implicit in the court's obligation imposed by 13-603C to issue restitution orders based uh, orders for the full amount of the victim's economic loss. Although the authority is generally exercised at sentencing, 13-603C is silent as to when restitution must be assessed, and we have concluded the court may expressly retain jurisdiction to order restitution beyond sentencing. This wouldn't be a normal case. Say, for instance, uh, I broke your, or I hit your car and damaged it. You should have restitution, know what it is by the time of sentencing. But in cases where the victim has other issues or 
say for instance I, I rolled into you and I have a case right now that we're going to be doing with the you know unfortunately the victim lost their a limb that can be a lot of restitution can be a lot of issues coming on so make sure if that is the issue in your case now again if the, if the restitution is settled and it's all done, you don't have to worry about it. But in cases where you think there may be restitution in the future, you should do a specific order um, reserving the right to impose restitution as it becomes necessary in the future. Be rare, but it does happen. Be more happening in felony cases, but it does happen in, in uh, misdemeanor cases also, depending on counseling, that type of thing. Next case is uh, State of Arizona versus uh, IBEA, B-U-C-H-A. On this case, it's interesting because the defendant, he goes through 11 and he is found competent to stand trial. Defendant has a lot of issues with his lawyer and wants to get rid of the lawyers and represent himself. And you, as we all know, you have a constitutional right to represent yourself. But the court has to determine, are you able to do that? Well, the defendant says, what do you mean? I've already had a Rule 11, and I've been determined to be competent to stand trial. So if a defendant has been determined competent to stand trial, can you then, for lack of a better word, find him incompetent or her incompetent to represent themselves at trial? This case says, yes, you can. Now, it wasn't a trial in this case. It was a probation violation case, but it still has the same effect. And it goes, after Rule 11, defendants found competent by a two-to-one vote. The, def the defendant, after attorney issues, wants to represent himself because he doesn't like his attorney, and the court's going to keep that attorney. The court, after an on-the-record interview with the defendant, rejects that request. The defendant appeals that decision after he's found responsible for his probation violation. The court is upheld. The Sixth Amendment guarantee to the right to self-representation in this case, we hold that when a defendant is competent to stand trial but lacks the mental capacity to conduct that trial himself, the Superior Court may, over his objection, appoint counsel to undertake his representation or deny his motion to represent himself. Self-representation at trial requires the mental capacity to minimally participate in the process as an advocate. An advocate must have sufficient mental capacity to understand the nature of the dispute, Formulated defense strategy, engage with the court, counsel, witnesses, and in some cases, the jury. By contrast, competency to stand trial requires the defendant only understand the proceedings and make decisions about the case as the manner progresses. Without a doubt, the role of advocacy requires more in the way of mental capacity. So at first, you'd look at it and you'd say, well, of course, if you're competent to stand trial, you're competent to represent yourself. But when you think about it and you look at the court's reasoning, you understand, no, you have to have a higher competency in order to be a lawyer, <laughs> one would hope. And, you know, again, like I said, it's only when you look at it superficially that you go, well, of course he can represent himself. When you look at it like, no, you, you understand the difference there. Now, if you're going to do this, you have to be real cautious because, remember, the Constitution gives you a right to represent yourself. And as lawyers, we all think, oh, no, you're crazy. You should have a lawyer. But it is difficult doing a trial. Um, yes, as you've seen with lawyers trying cases, a lot of times they don't even manage it very well. But uh, you have to make that determination. Is the person capable of doing it? Uh, next case uh, we wanted to talk about was uh, number 20, 
state of Arizona versus Hermilio, and the 29, sorry, 29. And in this case, um, basically the defendants, um, uh, what it basically is is I'm selling you drugs out on the street, and then once I get the money, I go back into the store, I get the drugs, the other defendants in the store with the drugs or owns the store, and then I bring the drugs out, and if, certain statements are made and then eventually they do a arrest and they arrest both me who was selling you the drugs and the store owner who was keeping the drugs in the place. We both want separate trials because what we're going to do is my claim as a store owner is going to be as hey I just rented you some space in the store I had no idea what you were doing he was selling you drugs that doesn't concern me. Your defense is going to be no uh, Jim was giving me all the stuff to take out. I didn't know what I was selling to this person. Jim was just saying, sell it to me, and then I'd give him the money. So the defenses are going to be antagonistic. They're going to be pointing at each other. We say, there should be severance here. And the court says, no, we're not going to have severance. Trial occurs. The defenses are antagonistic. They're both saying the other one did it. Both are convicted. They come up and say, we want a new trial, and we want it separate. Um, judicial efficiency doesn't take the place of where we're going to be pointing fingers at each other. And the court says, the defendant contends the trial court abuses discretion, denies repeated motions to sever his trial from that of the, his co-defendant um, because their defenses were antagonistic. We agree, and therefore reverse convictions and sentence and remand for a new trial. So by denying the severance, you didn't save judicial economy or make it judicially efficient. Because what you would have had was two trials, now you've had three. <laughs> so be careful with that. Sever it when its severance is uh, necessary. Now, since those materials prepared, there's been new cases. And one of the new cases I wanted to talk about was uh, um, uh, Brown versus Dumbro. Now this is a civil case. Um, and this is a court of appeals case that was filed on February 25, 2020. And in this case, it had involved, involved Rule 609. And what's interesting about this case is defendant is convicted of possession of drug paraphernalia, which is a six open. And as we all know, as long as it's a six open, it can be used as a felony. Um, and if it's eventually designated as a class 6 felony, it can be used as a felony under 609. As long as it's left open, it can be used as a felony for 609. The defendant who's convicted gets involved in a car accident that results in death and is sued civilly. Not under the uh, old, the new criminal statute that makes it a, a misdemeanor, but is sued civilly. Now, after the accident, but before the defendant testifies, the possession of drug paraphernalia is designated a misdemeanor. Now, the plaintiffs who are suing the defendant for the civil action when the defendant testifies wants to impeach the defendant with the possession of drug paraphernalia because it was a six open at the time of the accident. It is no longer six open. It is now a misdemeanor. And the court says no. Because it's now a misdemeanor, you cannot do it. Um, and so when the plaintiff loses the civil trial, there's an appeal, and, the, um, and in the appeal, they say we should have been allowed to impeach under 609 because it was a felony at the time of the accident. Say no, it's the issue comes up is when you testify. Because what you're doing is, is testifying, you're putting out, I'm an honest, innocent person, and you should believe me. And this is impeachment, but it's now a misdemeanor, so you're not impeaching the person anymore. Be different if it was still a, uh, a six open, 
because then you could argue, no, for all intents and purposes, a six open street is a felony. In this case, since it was designated a misdemeanor, no, can't do it. Next case I want to talk about was State versus Jones. That was uh, filed on March 20th, 2020. And basically, in this case, um, you and I get into a discussion that doesn't go well, and I sick my dog on you. <laughs> and it causes serious injuries and they allege the dog is a dangerous instrument and you're convicted they try to say no a dog cannot be a dangerous instrument because there's a specific statute that the legislature created afterwards that says a dog using a dog in these type of circumstances and they say no nope, uh, the statute when it was created did not overrule this did not limit it did not change the definition and just because there's one specific doesn't mean that uh, you can charge it one way or the other doesn't mean the prosecutor can't charge it that way I'll make a copy of this next one is state versus Arius and in this case is the uh, one that we all know about um, the only reason I listed this one is it does uh, an analysis on fundamental error and harmless error that type of thing and it's interesting because they do find a lot of prosecutorial misconduct in this case they're very scathing in the prosecutorial misconduct that they find and um, they say though that the evidence was so overwhelming of her guilt um, they're not going to overturn the trial because of prosecutorial misconduct the interesting theory would have been if, if she'd been sentenced to death would they have overturned um, because she got life imprisonment, no. But again, like I said, uh, the only reason I list is because it has a pretty good definition in it about um, the standard of review for misconduct in Superior Court. Because uh, some of the misconduct she objected, some of the misconduct she did not object. And it says the standard of review applicable to each claim depends on whether Arias objected to the alleged misconduct in the Superior Court. If she objected, we review for harmless error, but if she failed to object, we review only for fundamental error. Error is harmless only if we can say beyond a reasonable doubt that it did not contribute to or affect the verdict. Under harmless error review, the state bears the burden of proof. Fundamental error, on the other hand, is error going to the foundation of the case, error that takes the from the defendant the right essentially to his or her defense or error of such magnitude the defendant could not possibly have received a fair trial. If the defendant established fundamental error under prongs one or two, he must make a separate showing of prejudice, which also involves a fact-intensive inquiry. If the defendant establishes a third prong, he has shown both fundamental error and prejudice, and a new trial must be granted. The defendant bears the burden of persuasion at each step. In this case, though, they said the evidence was so overwhelming of guilt that they weren't going to overturn the verdict no matter what. Final case is a that just I just read today, it came out April 1st, um, State of Arizona versus Gasbari, G-A-S-B-A-R-R-I, it's Division 2 case. And basically in that case, it's really interesting because again they go after the prosecutors. And what happens is, is I, and the defense attorney, I file a motion to suppress. State does not respond. And it's a murder case, so it's not an inconsequential case. Um, uh, since no response is received, I file a motion that the court should deem response waived and make a ruling. At that point, the state goes, oh my God, um, the lawyer has been in a two-week murder trial and we asked for an extension of time to respond even though time has expired. Court says, well first of all, the murder case started after 
the time to respond had expired, a day, but it was after. But I'll allow you leave to file a response. So guess what the state does? It doesn't file a response. <laughs> so the defense attorney says, again, decide on the record. So court holds a hearing and says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to decide on the record and um, the I'm not going to hold a hearing, an evidentiary hearing. And deciding on the record, because I only have one side's information, evidence is suppressed. So go, uh, state dismisses and appeals. And what they say is, which is an argument I've always, I make in motions, although it's usually a waste of time is. When you look at Rule 16.2b1, it says that the defense has to, in their motion to suppress, allege specific circumstances and establish a prima facie case supporting the evidence, the suppression of the evidence at this, it, on this issue. So, what I always make the argument in, our ca in the cases I do is the defense has to establish through evidence that the evidence seized was without a warrant, even though everyone knows it was. For instance, traffic stop, that type of thing. And they see you smoking marijuana. Okay, they don't have a warrant, they seize it. And then the burden shifts to the state to show by preponderance that the evidence was seized legally. Uh, I had articulable reasons to stop your car and find that. I could tell it was marijuana before I stopped you, that sort of thing. Now, everyone knows there was no warrant in those cases. Even the state concedes that. In this case, the state didn't concede it because they never responded, period. <laughs> and the defense says, well, we established it by our pleadings. Now, what's the problem with that is? Pleadings don't establish anything. <laughs> they did list, as the court found, uh, specific circumstances that led to this, but it says you have to do articulable specific circumstances and, <laughs> and means two things, not or, and establish um, that a prima facie case exists. Now normally the parties since your motion to suppress don't raise that issue because what would happen is the state would call a cop, have get, I mean the defense would call a cop, have him get on the stand, did you do, did you have a warrant? No. Okay, we've established prima facie case. Then they have. And in one of the cases the defense cites, the state had conceded in its response and stuff and in, its, in, in, in the hearing that yeah, we didn't have a warrant. In this case, since there was never a response and never any concession, the state they said the state has not, uh, the defense has not established a prima facie case. So they said, go back. We're not saying as to how you should rule, but first the defense has to establish a prima facie case, and then what the state's going to then do is present evidence and say, judge, with all the evidence, you have to rule in the state's favor. So it's an interesting issue. Why, in a murder case, the state would not repeatedly respond? is amazing after getting a thing that you can respond and what's interesting is the state conjectures that maybe the state never intended to respond which would be bad if they asked for more time to respond and never intended they don't say that they did that or whatever but they do raise that as an issue saying were they just going to wait to have the hearing and then present the evidence to the court and say see the evidence doesn't support the defense motion
but that one just came out and generally shouldn't appear because generally courts will grant you more time if you need it uh, to respond um, because they don't want to respond just on one side. I mean rule on just one side. But it was a very interesting case that just came out and it establishes one of the points I was made, but whenever I just say we haven't established a prima facie case, they like, well, we, they didn't have a warrant, everyone knows. And we do all know they didn't have a warrant based on the facts and circumstances, but that doesn't establish it because it's just like uh, the lawyer statements in trial are not evidence. Your pleadings are not evidence. They're facts and circumstances you need to establish. Any questions? <laughs> Uh, that, that is terrific, Judge, and um, we thank you. We look forward to today when you can do this with an audience of, of actual live human beings. Um, <laughs> but in the interim, we thank you. And if you're going to submit a cogent certificate for this, you are certifying that you read through the materials that are attached. Uh, stay safe, everybody.